welcome to Osteopathy Unplugged. I'm Steve Paulus Dio. And I'm Bonnie Gintis Dio. We're American osteopathic physicians, and we're a married couple devoted to the practice and the study of osteopathic medicine. Join us as we sit in conversation, talking about the inner and outer workings of osteopathy. Hey, Steve, what's this episode about? We're going to continue our discussion of the question, what is osteopathy? In this episode, we'll explore the 10 major principles of osteopathic treatment. In episode three, we presented the 10 key concepts of osteopathic philosophy. These keys help the osteopath to unlock a way of looking at our patients in health and in disease. Many of these key concepts are based upon what we commonly call holism, or what AT still called connected oneness. Taken together, episodes three and four are a radical way to organize the complexity of osteopathy. We are proposing that we demonstrate our distinctiveness by being more specific rather than being too general. Yeah. The totality of osteopathic treatment works best when we concomitantly hold some quality of connected oneness while at the same time identifying a dysfunction. That dysfunction may be in the more quantifiable material field and have a very specific anatomic component or may be in the non-material field and have a quality more associated with inherent motion. Or we work with both material and non-material fields simultaneously. This episode will be devoted more directly to the action of osteopathic manipulative treatment. And before we get into treatment, let's discuss what it is we treat. To be able to find what it is that we treat, we must be able to perceive it. All of my teachers, each in their own way, repeatedly asked me to be aware of where I was in the body and what I was doing there. My most influential teachers, Stan Shiowitz, Ann Wales, Mary Hitchcock, Jim Jealous, Howard and Rebecca Lippincott, they all had their ways of teaching the importance of perceptual awareness. I wonder how many of our listeners have considered this in their perceptual training. So let's talk about perception for a moment. Perception is quite complex. It's not just sensing things. It's the process of sensing and interpreting that sensory information through all of the various filters we have from our education and our life experience. Perception implies awareness and a relationship between the perceiver and the perceived phenomenon. This discussion is beyond the scope of this episode's topic, so we're going to save that for a future episode about attention. The important point I want to make here is that the simple act of asking the question, where is my attention and what am I treating, is in and of itself a powerful teacher. Let's go back to dysfunctions and what it is we treat. Our mutual teacher, Stanley Shiowitz Dio, often told us that all of osteopathy can be found in the still quote, find it, fix it, and leave it alone. Let's deconstruct this important quote from A.T. Still. Find it means to make a diagnosis of a dysfunction, an abnormality, an obstruction, or some aspect of the body that's not working well. The it can be found either in the material, the non-material fields, or both. I'm glad you're including the material and the non-material. 
My concern is that people who are more oriented toward the non-material think that they don't have an it when they're treating. Of course, the it or the dysfunction or the lack of motion in the non-material fields is a much more nuanced discussion that we'll get into in a future podcast. Let's move on on deconstructing the find it, fix it, leave it alone quote from A.T. Still. Please. The fix it is the action of treating using a hands-on osteopathic manipulative treatment. Okay, I am not going to apologize for this next statement. And I've said it many times in the past. There is no osteopathy unless we utilize osteopathic manipulation. Mm -hmm. Leave it alone means that the osteopath must trust in nature or the body's ability to self-heal, to do the real work of healing. The osteopath does not fix or heal or cure. The patient's natural therapeutic process is the true doctor. Andrew Taylor still rephrased the find it, fix it, and leave it alone quote in his writings and said in a different way, and I quote, the osteopath seeks the cause, removes the obstruction, and lets nature's remedy be the doctor. Oh, I love this version of that quote. It takes away the it problem. I struggle with the version of the quote that has it in it because I feel like by saying it, we're objectifying the body and part of the message of connected oneness is to get rid of this objectification. So this episode is going to explore the process of an osteopathic treatment, the major anatomic systems that demand the most attention, and we'll look closely at the descriptive vocabulary of dysfunctions, abnormalities, or obstructions that prevent, slow down, or divert the therapeutic process away from doing the work of healing, repair, renovation, or creative compensation. I've examined all four of A.T. Steele's books with a fine-tooth comb, searching for and recording key words that describe his unique descriptive vocabulary. I have identified at least 70 words or phrases that are based upon perceptual anatomy and physiology that describe what we now call a dysfunction or what we used to call a osteopathic lesion. In A.T. Still's description of osteopathy, however, he did not use the terms osteopathic lesion or somatic dysfunction. He didn't have a single name for the abnormalities of structure and function that cause disease, illness, or persistent injury. He used perceptual or sensory terms to describe the many ways in which a body can have altered structure and function. Still was a perceptual genius. He was also a clinical storyteller. Yeah, my kind of guy. Still's approach was more descriptive and pathophysiologically accurate than just globally calling a problem a somatic dysfunction. It takes more work to use descriptive terms. He told the story of a human being with disease, and he used vivid and sometimes colorful expressions to illuminate a narrative of this unique individual's clinical situation. The clinical narrative of anatomy and physiology gone wrong is the real diagnosis. Oh, wait, wait a minute. The narrative is not the real diagnosis. Let's not confuse the map with the territory here. So we got to be careful with our language. And at the same time, the clinical narrative of a lack of action in the non-material field describes a quality of abnormality that often drives material dysfunctions. Let's outline the vocabulary of words used by Still to describe his experience. 
Bonnie and I have narrowed down and carefully chosen and thoughtfully organized 40 essential descriptive terms out of the 70 used by Still, and let's discuss them in greater detail. Okay, to begin, I'm going to offer another A.T. Still quote, which you've heard before in other words, and I'm going to repeat this sentiment because in it he uses the single most commonly used word in all of his writings to describe what's going on in the people that he's treating, and that word is obstruction. And here's the quote. Remove all obstructions, and when it is intelligently done, nature will kindly do the rest. What's great about this quote is that it functionally is the same as find it, fix it, leave it alone. From a historical perspective, we don't have the find it, fix it, leave it alone quote embedded in his structured writings. It was something that he relayed verbally and it was written down later by his students. We don't have an exact reference quote or page number in an original text of written or unwritten materials regarding the find it, fix it, leave it alone quote. But in many different instances, it's said in a very similar way. And in many ways, I think it's said better. Mm -hmm. So what I like is saying we're going to remove obstructions is much better than saying we're going to fix it. I agree. So I want to hear that quote again. Could you repeat it one more time? Sure. Remove all obstructions, and when it is intelligently done, nature will kindly do the rest. I love that he uses the word kind to describe the way nature functions in the body. I love it too. And by the way, a PDF of what we're about to do next is going to be available on the Osteopathy Unplugged website, so you don't need to take notes. Let's just pay attention to what we're saying, and you can download the PDF later. So I want to start with a list of some of his more general terms. And I've already told you the single most commonly used term to describe what he felt going on in people's bodies was the word obstruction. But one of the most interesting to me is variation from the healthy condition. Because he refers to the healthy condition there, we'll be doing a future episode that's just going to be talking about the health. He also spoke of channels of supplies closed, the friction that produces abnormal conditions, confused action, limited action, disordered functioning. You know, one of my favorite terms of his that you just said is confused action. Nobody in allopathic medicine talks about confused action in the body. It is such an interesting way to describe it. There are so many times when I'll put my hands on a patient and I feel a sense of confusion in their tissues. And that may be a confused anatomy and physiology, or it may be some aspect of emotion that I can feel through the body. Or you can feel the confusion of their system trying to adapt to something and not not hitting the mark. Absolutely. So I don't think we use the term confused action enough. I don't think the American Osteopathic Association would put that in their glossary of osteopathic terms. I, I don't think so. And I don't. I think that's the term we use amongst ourselves and we know what it means. We'll keep it a secret among okay. real osteopaths. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, moving on to uh, the Vitality series. Still spoke of stopping of some quality of life. That's another fascinating concept that he had a palpatory experience of a quality of life. Reduced vital energies, devitalized fluids, suspended forces. You know, we're going to have to have a whole episode on vitality. And I, I think know that so. in some ways it's kind of a dirty word in the 
Western scientific model, but I think our listeners are going to love the way we're going to orient and describe how vitality is really a biologic phenomenon. Right. It's at, Some people think of vitalism as a superstitious belief, yeah. but it's not. It's a, it's a quality of life that we experience. Absolutely. All right. Moving on to terms he used about the nervous system. Constriction of nerve supply, shortage of nerve supply, ligation of nerve supply, neurologic irritability. I find it interesting that in all of the words he used to describe these things, he never used words that we commonly use in the 21st century, restriction, compression, impingement. But these all mean the same thing. Yes, yes. I'm just adding the list of words and making the point that there are words, not his, which I think is fine. We're just trying to bring his words into the 21st century and, and blend our experience with his. Okay, moving on to fluids, unhealthy fluids, devitalized fluids, obstructed fluids, delay of fluids, hindering causes to normal flow of blood and other fluids. Steve, you want to read the next set of those? He also spoke of the lack of pure blood, stopping of some supply of fluid, withholding of fluids, stoppage of blood supply, ligation of blood supply, or pressure stricture, or contraction of the passage of blood. Well, I love how he uses poetic and evocative terms like withholding or hindering. They say so much more to me than somatic dysfunction or lesion. So the previous groups of term were a little bit more about arterial supply and delivery of nutrients. The next group of terms refer a little bit more to the venous and lymphatic side of the equation. He spoke of congestion, venous congestion, venous blood suspended, venous resistance, fluid retention, retained fluids, unnatural accumulation of fluids, edema, watery swelling of fascia and lymphatics, contraction holds the fluids shut up, stagnation and decomposition. So all of these terms referring to lack of venous flow or restriction of venous flow are commonly put under the umbrella term in osteopathy of passive congestion. One of my favorite concepts. And passive congestion, oftentimes, the way I was taught in osteopathic medical school, was frequently a preclinical condition that we could palpate, perceive, or sense in the tissues. And if we could relieve that or remove the obstruction, then we could actually prevent the actual onset of clinical disease. Right. We'll be saying more about prevention later on in this episode. Let's go into the more biomechanical or musculoskeletal words that he used. And there were many, but we're just going to pick a few. Normal and abnormal positions of all bones, mechanical variations, starvation and spasm of muscles. And I think that every osteopath who's listening knows what it feels like to palpate a starved muscle. Yeah. I have to say that the issue of the positions of bones has gotten way too much attention, in my opinion, and we will be talking about that later on. But for the time being, just remember that osteopathy was born and its early development took place during the advent of the Industrial Revolution. And this forced osteopathy, in a way, into a mechanistic thinking. It was the modern way of trying to describe things back then. So hopefully, as we spell out these principles, it'll all be put into perspective. But I'd like to add that being biomechanical is not wrong. 
and dealing with issues relating to bone positions, etc., are not wrong. It's just another way of looking at the body osteopathically. And we're going to go into the whole issue of alignment at a later date, obviously. Yes, I have a lot to say on the subject. Can't wait. (laughs) Moving on to fascia. He spoke of retention in the fascia, edema of the fascia, congestion of the fascia, and all of the lymphatic glands. So to me, this is fascinating because at the time, we didn't microscopically and biochemically know as much as we do now about fascia and particularly the inflammatory process in the fascia as well as the rest of the musculoskeletal system. So without having this microscopic and biochemical information, he was able to put his hands on patients and describe in incredible detail how the inflammatory process works long before it was known by the scientific community. He described and experienced what we now appreciate as phenomenon like adhesive inflammation, stagnation and decomposition, and much more. So when he talks about the terms adhesive inflammation, that's something as osteopaths that we can feel in the tissues. We feel adhesions in the fascia and extracellular fluid are really the containers for that. Mm-hmm. These are 40 curated descriptive terms for osteopathic diagnosis. But I must emphasize that if you can't diagnose or sense an abnormality, you can't treat. To osteopathic perceive is to describe what is sensed by our hands in the patient's tissues. Diagnosis is the it in find it, fix it, leave it alone. Oh, wait a minute. I think we need to talk about something before we move on. What about osteopaths who use protocols? Like in school, I was taught a 10-step protocol. Or there are osteopaths who do something they call a generalized osteopathic treatment, or what some people might call a shotgun approach. What do you have to say about that, Steve? Well, of course, I have a lot to say about that. (laughs) Okay. I really divide this question into three categories. Mm -hmm. Two are creative, and one is non-creative. First, what I call student protocols. When learning, we have a choreographed sequence of osteopathic treatments that are often taught to us that are very helpful. During the early years of learning, we don't exactly know how to feel. We don't know what to feel. We can't even diagnose an it. So we use a 10-step protocol or a 12-stage sequence taught to us by our teachers in school. And learning these sets of procedures helps to provide a framework for learning how to palpate. Yeah, I learned a 10-step protocol and I found it really helpful I remember my first week in a clinic, I did that 10-step protocol with, you know, the first five, six patients that I saw. And by the end of the day, I already was gathering information that was uh, leading me to my future style of practice. But I had to have a container for comparing and contrasting what I was feeling in people. And I very quickly dropped that protocol. Okay, let's move on to the second category of protocol, which is non-creative. And I call these habitual protocols. You're being kind. Yeah. Well, (laughs) in this situation, the osteopath is too casual. They're lazy. They're fixed in a routine. They're stuck in a rut. They're repetitive. They're predictable. In a habitual protocol, we are looking for what we want. We are not looking for what the patient needs. This is not a preferred way to treat and does not respect the osteopathic approach to healthcare. I think some osteopaths who have really busy practices can get stuck in this rut, and they think that the routine is saving them time. But in the long run, 
I believe that it isn't. I think when you just fall into doing a habitual protocol, you do things that you don't need to do if you're paying attention. So I think it's really important to address our habits and have a commitment to paying attention because we are habit makers. We are just pattern making machines. And this is not a bad thing. It's actually a really good survival skill. There's certain things we need to learn how to do and then not spend energy paying attention to them. But practicing osteopathy is not one of those. Right. So Stan Shywitz often told me the most important part of an osteopathic treatment is find it and leave it alone. I love that. He would say to me, the easy part is the fix-it portion of a treatment. If you can accurately diagnose, then the fix-it part is simple and easy. He would say the leave-it-alone part isn't our job as an osteopath. When an osteopath is stuck in a rut or a fixed routine, they are stuck in fix-it at the expense of find it or leave it alone. When we become more concerned with the specifics of an accurate material palpatory diagnosis and a precise non-material perceptual orientation, we up our clinical game, so to speak, and become better osteopaths. The last category is also creative, and it's what I call outlined protocols. Having a framework or an outline protocol can be a sophisticated scaffolding for a holistic diagnosis and treatment approach. It allows for a quick read of the body to determine what is important and what is not important. Let me tell you how I learned about the whole issue of an outline protocol, and that came from Stan Shywitz. Over a couple years, I witnessed him giving dozens and dozens of osteopathic treatments. And what I started to do was see a pattern in what he was applying osteopathically. And I started to write down the different stages of his protocol. And I not only wrote them down, I also timed the whole approach. Then I presented it to Stan and I said, do you realize you have a seven minute protocol? Oh my goodness. I I hope you haven't been observing me and timing me in such great detail. That is not going to be a part of a future podcast. Okay. Thank you. So what ended up happening was that I determined that he had this seven-minute treatment, which you and I kind of on the side called Stan Scan. (laughs) Once I presented the seven-minute treatment to Stan, he explained to me that he used this protocol as an outline. It allowed him to provide a scanning of the entire body. And then during and after the Stan Scan, he would do two additional approaches. First, He would identify a unique problem or lesion that he often called it found during a single stage of this outlined seven-minute treatment, and he would address that. But the more important part of the treatment was what happened in the second category. He would remember a crucial or strategic problem area and then come back to that at the end of the seven-minute outline. Then he would orient the rest of the treatment around these one or two strategic areas before he finally ended the treatment. So it seems to me that what Stan was doing was a version of what I call call and response. So on the surface, it may have looked like he was doing a similar sequence of diagnostic moves, but each time he did one of those, he was listening to the response of the body. So in the moment, sometimes he was quickly treating and moving on to the next, and sometimes in the moment he was just marking an area, like you said, to come back to later. But it was very dynamic and very communicative back and forth. 
So these three examples show how the protocol idea can apply really differently to diagnosis and treatment. And the key here is, as I always say, it's not what you do, it's the consciousness with which you do it. Yeah, I think it's uh, time to move on to the, to the principles. Steve, tell us. What we're going to cover next are the 10 major principles of osteopathic treatment. They're not new. And I propose we return to what I call original osteopathy, but with a 21st century twist. Let's bring the past to the present and make it relevant again. We can return to a stillian way of diagnosis and treatment by finding the lack of motion, identifying the specific anatomy involved, recognizing the non-material elements, and then treating what we find based upon what we feel in the tissues. Steve, I think you're the first person I've ever heard turn A.T. Still's name into an adjective. Stillian. I love it. Well, maybe we need to start a trend. Okay. So we're proposing an approach that is expedient and anatomically and perceptually specific, but is not oriented towards the nomenclature of 21st century medical coding. Rather than give a disease a number, an osteopath gives a function-oriented diagnosis based upon the presence or absence of motion. An osteopath is a clinical storyteller. Let's learn how to tell a better story. Mm -hmm. We are calling these principles of osteopathic treatment major principles of treatment because they are the most important. There are, of course, other minor principles of treatment that may be identified by some but we have thoughtfully organized what we know to be the most important ways in which an osteopath applies the art and science of osteopathy. Yeah, I love this by referring to them as the major principles. It allows us to be inclusive of a wider variety of principles overall. So let's begin with the first major principle, osteopathic manipulative treatment. Structural or functional disturbances of any system of the body are treated with the action of a patient-specific, dynamic, osteopathic manipulative treatment. Every patient is unique, and each treatment is individualized, matching a person's moment-to-moment distinctive clinical necessity. Osteopathic manipulative treatment is not merely the application of a technique used as a modality. That is so important. I'm going to read that sentence again. Osteopathic manipulative treatment is not merely the application of a technique used as a modality. Osteopathic philosophy and the dynamic action of an osteopathic treatment are interdependent and inseparable. Let me respond to this first and vitally important principle. And let me be perfectly clear. The first principle of osteopathy is to treat. There is no full expression of osteopathy without the hands-on action of a patient-specific, dynamic, osteopathic manipulative treatment. We are not just sitting there. We are doing something. The doing something during an osteopathic treatment is an action with the goal to engage a natural therapeutic process in the patient and to restore any aspect of holism. Osteopathy is not faith-based or a belief system. To be an osteopath, we center our clinical treatment and trust. We trust in the laws of nature. A patient is a part of the natural world, and we follow the instinctual actions of what it means to be a human being. I have met many people who have misinterpreted this aspect of osteopathic philosophy, and they feel like it is important to not do so much and just be there. And I think 
People have often confused faith, belief, and trust. What we do when we treat is we observe nature. We trust in nature. There's nothing to believe in. There's nothing to have faith in. If you want to have faith or belief, you can, but I don't think it's necessary to be an osteopath. It's a very active process to observe nature, trust it, and then support the body so that it can unfold at its greatest expression. We don't just sit there, although it may look like that from the outside to, to an onlooker. We also don't just focus in the negative. We're not just looking at a body and figuring out what's wrong with it. For osteopathy to be complete, we need to always be considering the health of the whole in addition to the dysfunction of the part. Treatment is incomplete without both. If all you do is engage health, your therapeutic options are limited. And if all you do is try to isolate what's wrong, your therapeutic options are limited. This is the beauty of osteopathy. And this leads us to the second principle, which is the principle of process-oriented treatment. Osteopathic manipulative treatment utilizes a dynamic therapeutic approach uniting diagnosis and treatment and reevaluation. The treatment process evolves based upon the body's response or lack of response to a progression of custom-made treatment inquiries that advance the patient towards health and a fuller expression of holism. This process-oriented treatment approach applies to both the material and the non-material fields and their inseparable interconnections. So I love this idea of the process, the inquiry, the call and response that I referred to before. And I love that this principle combines that this happens in both the material and the non-material fields. An osteopathic manipulative treatment is a continuous flowing dance moving between diagnosis, treating, perceiving response or lack of response, re-diagnosing, changing the treatment approach, noting a change, and repeating these actions over and over again until the body has a feeling of greater communication or a more complete expression of connected oneness. I just want to say that everything you just said can happen in fractions of seconds. Oh, yes. And that loops over and over and over again as we move through the treatment. The operative word in osteopathic treatment is dynamic. For me, this process-oriented treatment is done silently while I'm in a state of stillness. I remain in a state of perception before words or in what is called silent felt experience. I then seamlessly move into clinical discernment in what seems like only an instant. There's a power in not naming during the immediacy of an osteopathic treatment process. Instead, we clinically perceive and respond with clinical necessity. Once an osteopath becomes experienced, the process of discernment becomes second nature. We only need to delineate each of the specific steps when teaching to beginning students. The ultimate goal in osteopathic treatment is to arrive at a perception of any quality or subjective quantity of greater holism. I like to think of us as hands-on pragmatic scientists. I ask questions to the patient's body and form a series of clinical hypotheses. Osteopathic treatment utilizes the discipline of clinical empiricism as a framework for individualized patient care. I want to say a few words about silent felt experience. I often say that the primary way the body communicates 
is through silent felt experience. And nearly immediately after we've had one of these silent felt experiences, most of us go on to label, to describe our experience, then we interpret it, we judge it, we draw conclusions about it. And it happens so quickly that we take our conclusions to be literal representations of reality. So in a future episode, we'll be exploring this idea through the relationship of a branch of psychology and philosophy called epistemics. That's the study of how we know what we know. But what's important for this conversation is to acknowledge that we can move back and forth between silent felt experience and labeling. It's okay to do that, especially if you're aware that you're doing that. Because sometimes you need to have a thought in order to mark a situation that you want to remember later. So in my experience, I love being in silent felt experience and I make little markers that I come back to later on. And I can do that seamlessly back and forth because I'm aware that I'm doing it. What Steve calls clinical empiricism, I like to call more poetically call and response. Touching my patient is the call. And then I listen for their body's response. So diagnosis and treatment for me is the seamless going back and forth in this dynamic conversation of call and response, of touching and listening, of doing something and then feeling what the body does in response to that. Diagnosis, the words we come up with to describe the diagnosis, whether it's an insurance code or a story that we're telling, it's really only a perception of what is it isn't necessarily always exactly what's going on. So sometimes you need to play the game of putting what you're feeling into words. We need to do this in order to communicate with our patients. And sometimes we need to do this to give a code number or a diagnosis to an insurance company or a governmental agency that might be uh, reviewing your charts or paying for your patient's visit. And it's really important that we be aware of how translating our experience into this other language of words can distort our perceptions. So I'm always looking at that process and trying to come back to what I call the lowest order, the simplest silent felt sensory experience and being informed from that point. So one last point, an osteopathic treatment cannot be planned in advance. And osteopathic treatment is not a formula. It happens in the present moment. So you can't make a diagnosis and give it to somebody else to carry out the treatment. You can't make a diagnosis and say, I'm going to treat this diagnosis for the next three visits. It's a real-time event. That's why we call it patient-specific and dynamic. Yes. All right. Moving on, the third major principle of treatment is motion. Restoration of motion informs osteopathic manipulative treatment. Physical or material motion restrictions coexist with subtle or non-material motion restrictions and are treated using, once again, the patient-specific dynamic osteopathic manipulative treatment. Motion restrictions are the find it in Still's seminal quote. But what is it that we treat? We treat a dysfunction or an abnormality an obstruction, an osteopathic lesion, a somatic dysfunction, but really a lack of motion, which metaphorically I call a traffic jam. Yeah, I think everybody knows what a traffic jam is. Even if you don't drive, you've seen them. A traffic jam involves lack of movement, 
cars can't get through because something's blocking the flow of cars. Nothing can get in, nothing can get out. I think that all of osteopathic diagnosis and treatment is really based upon the presence or absence of motion. The find it part of osteopathy is diagnosing motion abnormalities or obstructions to motion. Any discussions of motion requires a discussion of abnormal motion. Abnormal motion can either be too little or too much. Most of the time, disease is created by too little motion, and the goal of diagnosis is to discover what limits motion. I'm going to give you three key quotes from Stanley Shiawitz. The first, he told me, if it moves, it can take care of itself. The second, if it moves, leave it alone. If it doesn't move, then move it. Third, if you don't get motion, they don't get better. The they he was referring to are patients. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. So those of you who know me know that movement is probably my favorite thing to talk about. So much so, I wrote an entire book on the subject. My book is entitled Engaging the Movement of Life. And in it, I speak about many aspects of movement. And there are a few of them I just want to point out now. So many people erroneously think that osteopathy is just about movement of muscles and bones or is really focused specifically on the musculoskeletal system. But we don't apply this movement concept just to the musculoskeletal system. It's not just about range of motion. What about the movement of fluid inside the middle ear? It's okay for the body to produce fluid in many different places, but if that fluid doesn't move, it always leads to a problem. So if fluid accumulates in your ears, you can have a problem hearing or it can lead to an infection. Mucus that accumulates in your sinuses is doing an important immune function there, but if it doesn't move, it leads to discomfort and ultimately infection. Stagnation leads to infection. Just like a pond that doesn't have a good inflow, outflow outside in nature gets kind of murky, the same thing happens in the body when there's lack of movement. And it can be movement of blood, movement of lymph, movement of mucus, movement of urine. It doesn't matter what it is we're talking about. It needs to move. When your emotions don't move, we call that depression. If the bile in your gallbladder doesn't move, it coalesces and you have gallstones. If the contents of your intestinal tract don't move, we have constipation. If your blood doesn't move, it clots. Blood needs to be in motion. I think you get the idea. Steve brought up this idea that most of the time the dysfunction involves lack of motion. And occasionally there's a dysfunction in the body where there's too much motion. So it's not like our goal is always to make more motion. If you have a sprained ankle and you have a ligament that's a few millimeters longer than it used to be, you'll have too much motion there. But guess what the body always does when there's too much motion somewhere? It creates too little motion somewhere else in order to adapt or create stability. It's not just the pure presence of motion. It's the balance of freedom of motion with stability. It needs to be organized for the body to be functional. That was very well said. Thank you. The next six principles of treatment include the major anatomic regions or systems that osteopathy addresses when we treat in a comprehensive and intelligent way. These are the six systems that still wrote of extensively and form the foundation of applying osteopathic clinical philosophy and determine where we anatomically prioritize treatment. 
Before we go on to talk about those systems, I want to say something about the idea of there being systems in the body. Systems are stories we tell ourselves so that we can efficiently communicate information about the structure and function of the body. Like I said before, we're pattern-making machines, and we like to group functions with other like functions. So we've created this model where we talk about the systems of the body. It's very convenient to break it down that way to learn it. It's a very functional way to learn about the body. But we have to remember that it was never separate and that we always have to take the parts we've separated in our mind, in our thinking, and put them back together in our experience of connected oneness. The body systems don't know that they're divided. Your knee does not know that it is separate from your kidney. Your heart does not know it's in a different system than your digestive tract. Your eyes don't know that they're in a different system than your tongue. Your jaw doesn't know that it's not in the same system as your pelvis. So with this in mind, let's move on and talk about the next six major principles that refer to systems. The fourth major principle is the musculoskeletal system. The musculoskeletal system, bones, muscles, and connective tissues, has a unique structure and function that impacts the overall health of the entire organism. When the musculoskeletal system fails to perform normally, the entire organism may suffer a localized or generalized disorder. Clinical problems may manifest directly or exclusively in the musculoskeletal system or via the effects of musculoskeletal dysfunctions in other systems such as nervous, circulatory, visceral, etc. This is so important, we need to break this down a little bit. For those of you who don't know, the musculoskeletal system forms about 75% of the body weight of an average adult. So if we combine the weight of all of your bones, muscles, fascia, tendons, ligaments, etc., that is three quarters of your body. There are on average 206 bones, there are over 600 muscles. This is such a huge part of the, of the bulk of your body that this so-called system either has a direct or an indirect effect on every other system in the body. And the musculoskeletal system has functions that people forget about. I mean, to me, the musculoskeletal system is part of the immune system. Bones are endocrine organs. There's a lot of immune and endocrine function throughout different parts of the musculoskeletal system that have far-reaching systemic effects. So it's not just mechanical dysfunctions. Those are obvious. So when we're talking about orthopedic disorders such as fractures, dislocations, sprains and strains, it's obvious how those things have a local effect and have a global effect because of their mechanical connectedness. But it's much more than that. The musculoskeletal system also directly affects the functioning of everything that touches it, runs through it or around it. So nerves, arteries, veins, lymphatics, extracellular fluid, all of these things are affected in their functioning when the musculoskeletal system is either restricting it from some problem of its own. So this is the hunting ground for an osteopath who can expand their thinking beyond the field of just ambulatory care, biomechanical orthopedics. Okay, there's no doubt that the osteopath spends a disproportionate amount of time and effort on treating the musculoskeletal system. But we don't exclusively address this large and complicated system. Let's move on and expand beyond the musculoskeletal system to other major anatomic fields of interest, 
in the osteopathic approach. The fifth major principle is the nervous system. Impairments of nerve structure and function are specifically addressed by alleviating obstructions, impingements, irritations, or overstimulation of nerves by the application of an anatomically specific osteopathic manipulative treatment. Okay, so I want to address a situation that's primarily come up in the United States. So many people in the United States, organizations, institutions, and individuals have chosen to refer to osteopaths as neuromusculoskeletal medicine specialists. And while that might be true, I feel like this term has limited us. Are we as osteopaths confined to this so-called new specialty of neuromusculoskeletal medicine? In America, we've isolated ourselves into this corner, but we are so much more than neuromusculoskeletal specialists. I'd like to weigh in on that issue and add my own opinion. So, Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the new specialty name neuromuscular medicine to describe osteopathic manipulative medicine in America. We are osteopaths, first and foremost. We utilize osteopathic manipulation. We apply osteopathic philosophy in a clinical way. I fully understand why, in the United States, we must now have a specialty devoted to osteopathic manipulation. But if we must fractionate the American osteopathic system, then we should and must call it osteopathy, or at least some name that includes in the title osteopathy or the words osteopathic. Obviously, I agree on that one. So let's move on and step outside of the corner created by neuromusculoskeletal medicine and talk about fluids and their containers. The next three principles, which are collectively associated with the circulatory system. The sixth major principle is arteries and veins. Impediments of arterial blood flowing into tissues and obstructions of venous outflow are caused by restrictions of the musculoskeletal system or from alterations in nervous system function. Freedom of blood flow forms one of the foundations of osteopathic manipulative treatment. Most of the time, when we talk about the circulatory system, we're talking about the containers of things that are circulating through the body we're not necessarily talking about treating the blood itself. We're talking about treating the containers and the environment that the containers live in that affect their function. This is a really important concept to get. It's not like you can't go to the contents. You just need to be aware of what it is that you're doing. So when we treat the container, the blood vessels that hold and move the blood, we change its function. The function of the contents change when we treat the structure of the container that it moves inside. This is the inflow aspect of passive congestion. So treating the blood itself is possible. It's much less common. It's somewhat esoteric, and we're not going to be getting into that today. I want to bring in an A.T. Still quote that is one of my favorites. He said, and I quote, we suffer from two causes, want of supply and the burden of dead deposits. So want of supply is the lack of arterial blood flow bringing nutrients, and the dead deposits are the burden of the buildup of waste products of injury, inflammation, and that leads us to the next principle, Steve. The seventh major principle is lymphatic vessels. An osteopathic manipulative treatment promotes freedom of lymphatic fluid flow from the extracellular space 
to the lymphatic vessels and from the lymphatic vessels into the venous system. So this also obviously includes movement of lymph through lymph nodes, which are stationed along strategic points along a lymphatic vessel. We've spoken so much about passive congestion. I'm not sure there's more to say right now in this introduction to the principle. We will talk more about it in future episodes. Let's move on to the next principle. The eighth major principle is extracellular fluid. An osteopathic manipulative treatment promotes a free exchange of fluids into and out of the extracellular space and into and out of the vascular space. Any restrictions of fluid movement relating to the extracellular fluid cause passive congestion, which is often the earliest manifestation of disease. So this conversation about passive congestion brings us back to that idea of prevention. Still never use the word prevention. That word didn't really exist in the culture yet. But we have so much evidence that he spoke about it in other terms, that taking care of this congestive state would keep the body from moving on to a more dysfunctional state that would then be called a particular disease. And as we speak of extracellular fluids here, and we've said the word fluid a lot, I want to address what might be an elephant in the room for some of our listeners. We haven't mentioned cerebrospinal fluid as a separate principle of treatment. And we haven't because we're including it in this discussion of the other fluids of the body. So the origin of cerebrospinal fluid is primarily an extracellular fluid process. The vast majority of cerebrospinal fluid is either an ultrafiltrate that's coming from the level of the choroid plexus. So this is a circulatory phenomenon where the fluid is being filtered at the level of these specialized blood vessels. And another portion of our cerebrospinal fluid is actually the extracellular fluid, like the lymphatic fluid of the brain, and it finds its way into perivascular spaces and into the subarachnoid space. So in essence, it's a very specialized extracellular fluid. And this fluid lives and moves in subarachnoid spaces, in the ventricles and cisterns and in other nooks and crannies of the extracellular space of the central nervous system. So we list it as a subcategory because we acknowledge that if you're going to work with this, you need to understand its anatomy and physiology. And this is a complex educational endeavor. And that those osteopaths who work with cerebrospinal fluid devote their life to extra study that's necessary to investigate this territory. Moving on to the next principle. The ninth major principle is viscera. Osteopathic manipulative treatment of the viscera involves addressing the organ parenchyma as well as the neurologic, arterial, venous, lymphatic, and myofascial elements that regulate the structure and function of the internal organs. I think it's important to pause here and acknowledge that the body is unified and all aspects of the body respond to the same influences of nature. So even though we are earmarking these different systems of the body as important things we work with, I think, in my opinion, it is so important that we don't divide osteopaths and osteopathy itself into isolated anatomic categories that we specialize in. I don't believe we should be calling ourselves visceral osteopaths or cranial osteopaths or musculoskeletal osteopaths. We don't separate any one part of the body as ranking differently in some hierarchy. Now, we do acknowledge that to work with 
any particular aspect of body structure and function, you may need to have extra education and training. And this is true of any aspect of the body you might delve into, but it doesn't warrant calling it by a separate name. Osteopaths treat everything. Osteopathy is not practiced in isolation. We also strongly see that every aspect of osteopathy in the cranial field is contained in these principles. The cranial bones and membranes are part of the musculoskeletal system. The brain, the spinal cord, the nerves are part of the nervous system. The cerebrospinal fluid is an extracellular fluid. The movement of both the material and the non-material elements that are included as a basic concept in these principles is evident here. Nothing is left out. It doesn't need to be listed as a separate entity. William Sutherland strongly emphasized that his line of inquiry was never meant to be separate from the rest of osteopathy. Now, still did not speak much of the treatment of the viscera or the treatment of the cranium, but he did revert to both of these situations, even if only briefly. It was later in the evolution of osteopathy that William Sutherland expanded osteopathy into the cranial field, and Jean-Pierre Barral, a French osteopath, began exploring treating the viscera in more detail. And surely in the future, there will be more expansions of our application of osteopathy, but it will still be as one unified field of osteopathy. In the same spirit, we don't separate biodynamics from the whole of osteopathy. One might call it osteopathy in the biodynamic field. Biodynamics is not a separate approach or system. It is a view that emphasizes the non-material inherent forces that's part of the connected oneness of osteopathy as a whole. Stay tuned for a future episode on this subject. I must say that was very beautifully and intelligently said. Thank you. It may have been controversial, but I strongly believe in connected oneness, and I'm going to defend it here. Well, but we're not going to be immune to controversy in this podcast. (laughs) Well, speaking of unity and the connected oneness of osteopathy as a whole, I would like to introduce the 10th major principle of osteopathic treatment, diagnostic and therapeutic actions of connected oneness. The presence or absence of an all-inclusive expression of holism is a diagnostic and therapeutic tool in the osteopathic treatment process. The perceptual fields of holism can be sensed and include the biological field of health, the many presentations of normal, the non-material fields of inherent motion, and the awareness of intercommunication in the patient's body. The goal of an osteopathic manipulative treatment is to engage a natural therapeutic process in a patient and to restore any aspect of holism. Osteopathy is both a philosophic principle and a principle of treatment. Everyone who actively works as an osteopath knows or feels or has a perceptual experience of holism, either being present or less than what it could be. I know that it seems incomprehensible that holism can be less than, but when I put my hands on a patient in a state of disease... I feel them as a collection of parts. This is either a preclinical or a clinical state of disease. At the end of the treatment, the body is communicating better and is functioning more as a unified whole. There are holistic qualities or functions that form the palpable experience of some aspect of holism in the body. They include the feelings of motion, normal, or the health, 
Health is one palpable quality of holism. The first concept of osteopathic philosophy is holism, and the last principle of treatment is holism. The presence or absence of holism is both diagnostic and therapeutic. In an osteopathic treatment, we don't just isolate and treat the parts. We also put it all back together. There is a relationship between the whole and the part and between the part and the whole. During a treatment, we can commonly hold that which is holistic with that which is dysfunctional or fractionated or not communicating. During the osteopathic treatment process, we are working to restore any aspect of holism or enhanced communication so that the body can then do the rest. Even the vital action of attention is therapeutic. Holding the perceptual field of a patient in open attention is an action of enclosing holism. Paying attention to our patients is holistic or is a holistic field. Many wise people across divergent fields have said some version of the saying, the greatest gift you can give another person is your attention. We'll be exploring the field of attention in a future episode. We've come full circle, creating the alpha and the omega. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. This is a symbol of connected oneness. Connected oneness is the first philosophical principle, and we've made it the last principle of treatment, completing and connecting the circle. In our next episode, we will be expanding this circle to explore the osteopathic ways of being. Please join us. Thank you for listening to Osteopathy Unplugged. We have created a collection of foundational episodes free of charge. These teachings will provide an introduction to osteopathic clinical philosophy and are available wherever you get your podcasts. The ongoing collection of Osteopathy Unplugged will be released at regular intervals and will only be available by subscription at patreon.com slash osteopathyunplugged. And remember to share our podcast with a friend or colleague. A special thanks to Corey Blake for composing our theme music. We would love to hear from you. Please post comments or questions on our Facebook page or on our Patreon homepage. We trust that upcoming episodes will address your burning questions. Until next time, be well, listen deeply, and stay curious. Mm-hmm.